Just thinking through what I was going to share with you this morning, and this is the second part of a, of a three-week little series, you might say, that we've been doing on mission. I guess I should maybe take just a quick second to let you know that although today's message is a complete standalone sermon, meaning it's designed to encourage you and equip you and challenge you, uh, disconnected from the other two sermons I want to teach to you, uh, it really would be beneficial if you were not here last week or were unable to hear last week's message to listen to that because the... Uh, the ability for these three talks to work together is pretty pretty powerful. And so I would ask you to think about that. Today we're going to talk a little more detailed about mission, but last week we actually spent some time talking about the cosmic nature of God's mission. We talked about the theology of the mission of God and the responsibility we have in it, particularly to be dispensers of God's peace or his shalom. And so today we continue to study an important truth that Jesus gives us in John chapter 20, verses 19 through 23. And the premise of what we're studying in these verses highlights a, a very common heart attitude that, that's present in people, one that is central to us living a robust and a meaningful life. What is it you might ask? If you were here last week, you know. If this is your first time here or maybe you missed last week, I want to tell you what it is. Uh, when we deeply care about something or someone, we are often compelled to live and to sacrifice for it, to take great risk for it. Before I left on my vacation about a month ago, I shared with us this, the, the important rhythms, the dancing rhythms, I said, that need to be present in our lives for us to pursue Jesus in a healthy way. And they revolve around these three ideas. The, the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we want to pursue Jesus well, we need to know his truth. If we want to uh, pursue Jesus well, we need to be committed to a church family, a community. We need to be working out our life, our faith, our salvation amongst other men and women who love Jesus. And then I introduced, just prior to my leaving, this idea of mission. I sort of use that sermon, the end of it, as a springboard to, to bring us right to the place where we are right now. It's in these verses that Jesus establishes and commands us to carry out his redemptive mission in the world. That idea is actually rooted in this passage of scripture that we're looking at here, mission. It's not the only place, but it's one of the most powerful places. And the, the Tencent version of this verse is that God has sent us into the world, according to Jesus. God has sent us into the world in the very same way that God sent his son Jesus into the world. So when you read about the life of Jesus, you don't read about a life, study about a life, pray about a life from the outside looking in. You're actually supposed to be asking God, how is it that the life of Jesus can become your life? And in this teaching, Jesus is trying to show us that just like him, when a person truly loves and experiences the love of God, truly experiences the love of God, the shalom of God, the peace of God, that peace that transcends all brokenness and can mend all hurts, the natural result should be a Christ-centered compulsion. And I use that word not because there weren't other words to use, but because it's the right word to use. A compulsion simply implies that there's almost no thought in it. It's, it's such a hardwired reality in your life to experience the love of Jesus that when you see need, you just compulsively apply it to other people. It's a second nature to you. And in the case of Christianity, we might say it's a first nature. The nature that Jesus shows us, his love, his grace, is now something that is so deeply embedded in our, our hearts and on the tops of our minds that we now compulsively live it for other people, sacrificially. Now, in light of that, in our Philippians series, which I shared last week, is now in its final term. We've only got a handful of messages left here. We've continued to examine in detail that, that all of those gospel promises we've learned about in the book, and we have studied a ton of them, they are not just meant for us. And a passage like this, a passage like where we started in Philippians chapter 3, Paul saying, listen guys, look to me, follow those, fix your eyes on those who follow Jesus. This is a great example of what it means to follow Jesus, one of the many ways. 
Jesus commissions us to share those gospel promises to the rest of the world. And so whenever we read promises of the gospel, to truly understand the gospel, means that when you read a promise that God has made to you, at some point in your life, God wants that to be a regular pro promise that you apply to other people. So when God is gracious to you, we celebrate that, we sing that. We have to be gracious to others. When God loves us, which he does deeply, and sacrifices for us, and puts his son on the cross for us, and gives himself up for us, that is the kind of attitude God wants us applying to our lives. He wants us to live selflessly and sacrificially for him and others. Over these next weeks, we're going to look at God's redemptive mission, and I hope doing so will convince your hearts as to why you should be on it. And so last week, 10 cent summary, we established that Jesus' mission has always existed. That's what we looked at, the history of the mission. It began in the first pages of Genesis. It didn't happen or begin in the Gospel of John. Jesus was just the climax of it. God was always working in the world to help men and women know him. He used the Old Testament people of Israel, and in the New Covenant, the New Testament, his son now sets apart a new group of people called the church. And we have the same responsibilities the nation of Israel did, to make famous the name of God in the world. We talked about God's mission always existing, and how he gave us his Holy Spirit to accomplish it. Today we add another layer to our study by focusing a little bit about what the accomplishing side of this looks like. I want to sort of talk a little bit about the vision of mission and then give us some practical steps on what it means, what it looks like in our lives. And this leads me to the first truth I want to share with you this morning. Living with Jesus' peace, his shalom, and that word is behind me because the English word peace does not do justice to this word shalom. Shalom, I said last week, is think of it like this. It's the ability for God to heal what almost seems to be unhealable. Think of a glass vase, throw it on a piece of concrete. Destroyed beyond repair. No way to remedy or fix that. This is the idea behind the shalom of God. God is able to reconcile and redeem that which seems unredeemable. He is able to defeat sin once and for all and mend our lives back to him. And in the same way, he is able to do that in our hearts when we are suffering, no matter what it is, what we're hurting from whether it's an emotional issue or a spiritual issue or a physical issue, the peace of God, what he has offered us through the cross, is able to mend all hurts. If we'll trust in that and believe in that and press into that. And so living with Jesus' peace, his shalom in your heart, should compel you to be on Jesus' mission in your life. If you have been redeemed like this, compulsively, compulsively, you should want to see others redeemed. John chapter 20, verses 19 through 21. I want to reread this small section. On the evening of that first day of the week... When the disciples were together, with the doors locked for the fear of Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And after he said this, he showed them his hands inside. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Remember the story up here. The story up is that the disciples are running for their lives. Jesus has just resurrected. And what he tells them after his resurrection is, I'm giving you my peace, now go get on my mission. In that order, we don't get told to get on a mission on our own. He gives them the peace and the power of his Holy Spirit, and then says, now go redeem, go help the world find me. Now, for some people, God's mission is just an afterthought in their life. But Jesus teaches us that it has never been this way for God. That's what this signifies. Because this whole message revolves around this idea of God's mission, it's really important that we have a working definition of what God's mission is. I shared this with you last week, I want to share it again today. So you have a, a construct in your head of what mission is according to God. It is this. It'll be behind me. The act of God breaking into the story of humanity. That's what happens. God sees a fallen and broken people and steps into the story of our lives. 
reveals himself to the people of the world in order to redeem and restore those people suffering under the bondage of sin to himself. He sees a problem and intervenes in a very powerful way. And the reason I mention this again is because truths like this one are the best way to motivate our hearts to be on God's mission if we currently aren't. There are lots of things we can talk about, but the foundation really should be a recognition of God's love for us. When you really begin to understand what this means, how far God has gone in order to restore you to him, to bring his peace to you, a subject we addressed in great detail last week, then something usually changes in our lives when it comes to God's mission. At least it should change. Because God has this uncanny ability to move us from maybe resistance, the hard-heartedness that we can have at times, we don't care, don't want to care, or are just maybe like, you know, apathetic, right? in the bad way, or benign apathy. This is what I find to be more common amongst Christians. They are not against this at all. They are not against the love of God. But maybe over time, the pointy edge of what it means to say God, has, God loves you and me and has died for us, the pointy edge of that sort of gets a little bit blunt. No longer is there compulsion, but maybe there's an apathy of what it means to be called an ambassador of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What we want to change, what we want to see happen here is that we become shalom distributors of God's grace. We actually are, you know, consider yourself like a cosmic dispenser who God has given you, according to this passage, God has given you his peace to share with the world. And when one deeply experiences the peace of God like this in their own lives, it should compel us to be a bit of a mending agent in the lives of others. And that powerful truth about God's mission in our lives is as ancient as he is. It has always existed because people have always had need for God. Even when we were right with God before the fall, there was need for God. We were right with God. In other words, because we were right with God, we needed him. His presence was there for us to, to bask in and to, to glory and to be a part of his life. After the fall, though, we need him in a very different way. We need his redemptive power now. It's always existed, God's mission, because God has always cared for the people of the world. Even in the moments when we are very far from him. And so the question we have to ask is, if this is important to God... If mission is a central part of who we are, knowing the truths of Jesus in our hearts, sharing them with other people, living them out of community, and sharing them with people who are far from God, it's a very natural question to ask. If this matters to God this deeply, is that mission, is God's mission that important to us? Does it matter to us that deeply? And I want to answer and explain this before we move on by sharing with you a little bit about our church. I feel like it's important to do this. You know, at Restoration... God's redemptive mission is extremely important to us, and I hope it is as important to you. And for many of you, it is. It's encouraging to hear your stories. There are a lot of them. I see them all over the place and hear them. And so again, when I say this, I don't say this with a finger pointed. As much as I say this from the angle of, we want to make sure this is a value we never lose. The reason affirming this statement is important, that God's mission matters to us, is because restoration, when we say this matters as a church, restoration is not just a name. Restoration is the collective representation of you and me, of a body of people who have been set apart by God to do things for Him, to be something in Him and to do things for Him. And while all churches have a name, it is important to know that a name represents, or at least it should represent, something much more than a name. And our name represents something pretty powerful. Good ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church, says that the church is a group of people who are united to each other in Jesus, whom God has set apart to bring about his good, his causes, his peace, his gospel in the world. That's pretty deep stuff when you think of your life like that. We are a collective group of people whom God has set apart to be peace dispensers in his world. And what that means is restoration is much more than a name. It has to be. 
The title Christian is much more than a name. We are more than a series of programs or worship gathering or ministries. We do that stuff and for good reason. These are wonderful things. But we are much, much more than that. Even those things are aiming at doing something very important. Ultimately, we are God's people. A people whom God wants to use to do great things for his son Jesus. And this is the stuff that makes up mission. This is why we are here. So in case you didn't know, when we started our church seven years ago, that was the chief end of it, and that hasn't changed. When we started Restoration, we did it with a very specific purpose. We built a name around an identity we wanted to press into. A purpose embedded in our name that, res that uh, describes a corporate responsibility we have to our neighbors and city and world, but also an individual responsibility that you and I have to our neighbors and cities and world. And the reason why it's important to be specific about this is because it's very easy at times, I think, for us to say, like, the church should be reaching the world. That sounds great. It's like a great TED Talk analogy. But at the end of the day, what that really means is you and I should be loving and caring for our neighbor in the name of Jesus. Totally different statements. One has, like, the church saving the world, right? The other says, like, I got to do something when I leave this room. Pretty different. And so if you ever wondered why we named this church this church, it's found in Acts chapter 3. I had a conversation with a friend of mine in Atlanta like 15 years ago, and I'll never forget this. We were talking about Acts chapter 3 and the importance of how uh, it teaches us that all of creation groans. That's what Acts tells us. The world groans. If you ever doubt groaning, just look at what took place this past week. In that chapter, we learned that since the fall, all of creation in various ways, some not even knowing they're doing it, this is the tricky part of this. They've been crying out to God, waiting for a time of refreshing. Waiting for a day when Jesus brings permanent restoration to the earth. When he addresses all evils and injustices. When he fully heals, when he properly, fully, upon his second return, applies the shalom that he can bring to the world. In other words, there is no more prayer for Charlottesville and places like Barcelona. We don't pray for that stuff anymore because that stuff can't happen anymore. The hurt we experience in our lives, it can't happen anymore because God has once and for all Change this. Fixed it permanently. We live in that in-between. God has redeemed us on the cross, but we're in this in-between zone right now where we wait for a second coming to once and for all eradicate sin, to restore things to the way they were pre-fall. That, my friends, listen to me, is going to be a good day. I don't know if you've ever thought about that day. It's a day that should give us great hope. It's a day we should all long and labor for, pray for, and it's one we should know that while it is ultimately brought about the power of God, look at this passage. Jesus resurrects gives them his Holy Spirit and his power and his peace and sends them into the world. The foundation for what Jesus tells us to do in John is Jesus. Can't disconnect these two ideas. But there's a massive responsibility he gives his disciples and consequently us. He says, listen, the way my peace and power, my shalom goes into the world is by your faithfulness, you and me. We are called to proclaim this gospel of redemption through word and deed, inseparable. And so if you want to know what our church is about, this is what it is about. And I will share with you a story. I shared this in the early days of restoration. This is perhaps, you know, rewinding that conversation I shared with you in Atlanta 15 years ago, roughly. And then this conversation that I had about eight years ago as we were having a graphic artist design our graphics and all of the digital stuff you see. I had a meeting with a person, a good friend of mine who does this for a living. And during the consult, um, she had asked me to tell her about what our church was going to look like. In other words, give me an image of something that doesn't exist yet. And I share with her just what I share with you in great detail. And what she said to me was interesting. She said, listen, there's like a pretty deep theology behind that name. It says something substantial. The name communicates something very significant, very rich about what you want to be, what you're trying to do. 
And then she just said, listen, I'm going to design your graphics. That's what I do. But make sure you live up to the name. <laughs> That's what she said. Make sure when you say you're a church that wants to be about the redemptive healing of God, that you actually see that happen, or at least you're laboring to that effect. This is one of the greatest strengths we have. I heard one woe. One person's impressed. This is one of the greatest strengths of our church. It really is. Is uh, In ways I have not seen in the past. I'm not saying in better ways, but I'm saying in a unique way. This is a hardwiring in us. And I see it very regularly in the way that we bear burdens and carry burdens for each other. And the way that we care for neighbors. It's pretty encouraging. And so while we always have room to grow here, I want you to hear this. I'm not saying we're perfect here. I'm not saying like this, this book's on the shelf and we're done with this one. I am saying we have room to grow here. And this is a subject we'll be talking about over these next months. While I am saying this, it's, it's worth pointing out that before we move on, the substance of this does exist here. And I think we are more than a name, but I don't ever want to just be a name. I want to continue to fight for that. Because of that, we want everyone here to be about two restorative relationships. Your passionate love for Jesus, which is only made possible by Jesus, and your passionate love for your neighbor, which is only made possible because of Jesus. He's, he's the fulcrum in between those two ideas. He's the, the, the power and the pressure making all of this happen. That is what Jesus is saying here in John 20. It's a very short way of saying, bring my peace to the world. And what's awesome about this is that Jesus' words give us an incredibly unique purpose and a meaningful mission in life. They start to define value in our lives. And so since we're studying this truth under the larger heading of Philippians, the book the Apostle Paul wrote, let's turn to Paul's life just for a few minutes to see how he lived his mission. Now, we concretely know that as imperfect as Paul was, and this is what is great about Paul and even the disciples. Remember, I told you last week, the disciples are not on their A-game right now. Jesus shows up to them, just resurrected, like he just came back from the dead and they're hiding. Imagine that. Like, we are, you know, we sing about the resurrection during Easter. This was a new thing for them. But here they have just witnessed the power of God. And their response is not this. Their response is fear and trembling. And so Jesus, in his grace, takes their fear away by giving them his peace. The interesting thing about Paul is he's a later version of the same reality. Paul had a lot of faults in his life, a lot of challenges, a lot of problems, like all of us. But because of his faithfulness to God, God used him. He was obedient. And God used that. And there should be great hope for us in that, that we don't need perfection to be on the mission of God. We need to be obedient. We need to be striving to love Christ. And God will do what he's going to do in us. Because of this, his actions give us an a valuable insight into what the mission is supposed to look like in our lives. And while there are an endless number of ways that we as a church can be on mission and doing ministry, uh, the driving motivation for what we do is to see people come to faith in Christ. Whether that is an act of service, a kind word, a missional opportunity in a community group, uh, a conversation with somebody at lunch, encouraging or being kind to a waiter or a waitress at a restaurant, whatever it is, and I'm giving you real-world examples of things I see happening on a regular basis in our church, whatever it is we're doing, we should be doing this to, to, to have an opportunity to share the peace of Jesus. The driving motivation of what we do is to see people come to Jesus, to see people embrace this amazing identity of a child of God. You can't be a child of God and know what that means and want to be stingy with that. We want other people to recognize this shalom, this peace that only Jesus can give them. And this is why Paul is such a good case study for us. Because his life really reflects the missionary nature of God. It reveals the deep and eternal gospel truth that while God first chose to set his love upon us, foundational truth, and he, he corroborated his love for us, evidenced it in a mighty way through the resurrection, 
He has now set us apart, compelled us to set his amazing love on others. That's pretty amazing when you think about it. The mission of God, orchestrated by God, is entrusted to you and I until Jesus returns. Have you ever thought about your life like that? Like, you are a plan A in God's eyes. There, there isn't a, like a second option here. He isn't like, and if it doesn't work out with the people of my church, I'll go here. That's not what he said. He said, my peace I give you, the people of my church. That's what we're reading about in John. It's the foundation of what we know to be the church today. God's setting apart a people to do something for him. So the question here is a pretty obvious one. If you recognize what God wants to do in your life, what he has done to do something in your life through Jesus, the question becomes, do you receive that invitation? Do you say yes? And you have to know that God has given you this, this personal responsibility of being an ambassador of restoration in this world. That's what he's calling us apart, or setting us apart to do on behalf of our neighbors. And what happens here is pretty profound. Because what Jesus shows us in John what we're re reading about in the Apostle Paul's life, what we look at our lives, what Jesus is saying is that his peace is for us, but not only for us. In fact, God has made it clear that you and I are a major part of the way that this actually happens. Meaning, th think about this. God's peace is displayed to the world on the cross, but the way that he delivers the message of the cross right now is through, through you and I. He set us apart, I love this word, to be a shalom dispenser. That's what you are. You're, you're passing peace out as you go along the way. That's the way God set this up. He is the head, and he commands us to be the body, his people. He wants us to live in peace and to be sent into the world in the same way Jesus was sent to, into the world to bring peace. We just sang about that. And so the way I wrap up this morning is by addressing some practicals. How do you do that? How do you first and foremost know if you have not experienced the peace of Jesus or you are experiencing it in a marginal or a nominal way? It's going to be very hard to apply action to that. There is a compulsive reality that happens when you know Jesus deeply. He starts doing things in you that you thought he could never do. And you start caring in ways that maybe you did not think were possible. How do we get to that place? What happens when, when you've experienced peace? What should life look like? Well, the way we get on Jesus' mission is to love Christ above all else and then to share the truth of, of, his, of his promises of the gospel. And I hope you take good notes right now. Even though the mission of God is built on the peace of the Holy Spirit, it's accomplished through the work of your hands. This is how we wrap up. Your peace, or God's peace, has been given to you and me so that we can be the work. We can do the work. We can be his hands. John 20, 23. Listen to this. He says, if you forgive the sins of anyone, their sins are forgiven. He's speaking to the disciples now. This is not God speaking to Jesus. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Interesting. Here, Jesus is giving the disciples, like, a forgiving authority. So what we learn here, straight up, is that the mission of God often entails hard and faithful work. I wish I could kind of get around this. But I can't. It requires a group of people to very seriously understand their role in nature and God. And very quickly, I want to say that there can be a great amount of confusion associated with verse 23. And that's why I want to touch on this before we move on. Because it seems to imply that, that you and I can forgive people of their sins. And I want to be clear about this, about what this is and isn't saying. What this is not saying, first of all, it's not saying that you and I can forgive people of their sins in the shalom kind of way. In the redemptive sense. What we talked about last week and touched upon today. Because that would contradict the clear teaching of the Bible. What, what Jesus is saying here is not that you, know, you and I can forgive sins in the way Jesus can forgive sins. Only Jesus can do that. The whole Christian faith falls apart and is radically inconsistent with the New Testament. If that's how we interpret this. And it has been interpreted this way. Which is why I share it with you. It's in Christ alone that sins are forgiven. Secondly... 
And this is what I find interesting. What Jesus is saying is that every Christian has been commissioned by God to declare this peace and forgiveness to the world. We don't have the authority to, to forgive sin like Jesus does. But we have the authority to spread the message. To tell people, if you believe in Jesus as your Savior and follow Him as your Lord, you are forgiven. You're a conduit for the authority of the forgiveness of God. That's a pretty powerful responsibility. Jesus is giving us an authority to declare a forgiveness that has already been granted to us through Jesus because of what he's done on the cross. He gives us the authority to proclaim the message. We are dispensers of peace. And the point of this verse is that God's people should be compelled to proclaim the message of forgiveness where the opportunity is given to us. And since this is where Jesus left the disciples, at least in our text today, this is where I will leave you this morning. I want to give you four very brief but important steps that you can take to be on mission if you're not. In some ways, this will be a bit of a diagnostic to determine whether or not the truths of Jesus lived out in community are shaping, are compulsively rewiring the way you live. If you're already on mission, these are steps that can help you to be more effective. If you're not on mission, they become a great opportunity uh, to, to be a starting point for mission. Four brief ones. Step one, they'll be behind me. Write them down. Take pictures of them. If for some reason you don't get them, email us. The sermon will be online. We'll get them to you. But I want you to really think on this this next week. Pray over this stuff. Step one, commit to pray for God to make and keep your heart sensitive to his redemptive mission. So if you want to know how to be on mission, if you're saying like, you know, I hear this stuff and I've read the Bible a lot and I've got John 20 memorized, but I've never had this kind of compulsive drive you're talking about to love like Jesus has loved me. The beginning point, the origin point is, is prayer. It's always prayer. The mission of God, first and foremost, is God's mission. So if you want it to be your mission, then you have to invite God into the process of making that a reality in your heart. No great work, no matter what, what we talk about here, no great work in God's economy has ever happened without his people praying to God. Because at the end of the day, it is God's great work. We just get to be a part of it. So you have to start by asking God to raise up laborers for the mission. And you have to include yourself in that prayer. You can't just pray for the world. We have to do that. But we have to pray for our role in the world. For God to make clear our responsibility in the world. We have to ask God to show us the people whom God has placed in our life to share the message with. Whether that's a kind word, a, a word of encouragement, a physical act of service, or maybe a, you're at a place in your life with people where you're like, you're literally sharing the gospel. You're like knee deep in the truth of who Jesus is in their lives. Whatever it is, you have to pray for those opportunities. Because you just have to know you're never going to fully value the things of God in your own life without God making his values your values in your own life. It can't happen without him. Simply put, I said this like a hundred times during our Nehemiah study, you can't build God's kingdom without God the king. You can't be on God's mission without God the king. So pray for a mission burden and watch how God works. Pray for the burden and see how God works. Step two, you have to act. You have to bless and serve those people in the kingdom when God shows them to you. Share with you a pretty powerful verse in Matthew 5.16. It'll be behind me. Jesus says to his people, Let your light shine before everyone, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. One of the responsibilities of the Christian, that our lives illuminate darkness wherever we go. May our good deeds and praise, oh, may our good deeds create praise for our Father in heaven. People look in us and through us and to us, and they see shalom. That's what this is saying. They might not even fully understand it, but they look to us and see something beyond us. Matthew 5, 16. Listen to me. Today, 
Many of our neighbors are more skeptical of religion than perhaps ever. I can't concretely or scientifically validate that fact, but it is pretty fair, to, like in, the, in the, the history of the globe. But I can concretely say people are very skeptical these days of religion. For good and sometimes for ridiculous reasons. No matter where a person is coming from, even if it's you this morning, it is important for our good deeds to corroborate our good words. What I'm saying is, is when God shows you a need in your neighbor's life, you have to bless them. You have to meet it with the shalom of Christ. You have to be attentive to the way God is working. You have to seize opportunities when God prevents, uh, presents them to you. Remember, when it comes to Jesus' mission, there will always be time to pray, a time to pray, and a time to act. And if you need a, a physical example of this, I go back to Jesus and the cross. Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? He prays about the cross. He recognizes what is before him, the great and terrible cost. He prays about all that stuff. And then eventually he gets up and goes to the cross. He goes from Gethsemane, a posture of prayer, to Golgotha, where he dies. Prayer and action are never disconnected. So pray for God to give you the courage to act upon what you pray about and watch how God works. Pray and bless. Thirdly, this is an important one. Because if you, you're actually never going to get to step two if you don't recognize what I'm about to say here in step three. Maybe you're saying you pray a lot for people, uh, or uh, you know, I'm, I'm a person who's constantly asking God to give me opportunities, but I don't see them or ever experience them. That could be very legitimate. But I find at times there's a reason why we seem to have a shortage of opportunities. Step three, you have to make it a priority to dwell among people that do not believe in Jesus. In other words, the, the onus we have in this is that if we are going to pray for God to, to show us where there is need, places to bless, opportunities to serve, then we have to be amongst the people where we know that is going to exist in deep and meaningful ways. In other words, you have to be on the mission. For some people, this is a really hard one to grasp. And I will tell you that the longer we are in Jesus, the harder it can become to, to grasp. It's very common over time to see Christian people kind of get imbalanced or over-focused on the second, the second rhythm that we dance to, community, like our love for each other. And I'm not saying don't get overbalanced in it, but be overbalanced in the other two too, also. It's very common at times to see people, as they grow in their faith, to only want to be around other Christian people. The, the, the non-Christian nature of the world at times becomes a liability or a burden to them, a frustration. And while God loves that we love each other and wants us to love each other, hear me, I'm not undermining this at all. I am saying that that should be somewhat of a compulsive reality to show that love to our other neighbors. Jesus sets the precedent for this. The authority to make this statement comes from Jesus. I am confident that it was a much better environment for Jesus to be with his Father in Heaven and his Holy Spirit than it was for him to be on this earth with us. But at the end of the day, Jesus doesn't just stay in the heavens. He comes to the earth. We will celebrate this during Christmas. He comes to the earth and becomes one of us. He dwells amongst people who are very far from him. People who will ultimately reject him. And because of this, you know, we could stop it there and say, well, Jesus left the comforts of heaven and dwelt amongst the world that you know, rejected him. That's true. There's a comma after that. Because of this, many of those unbelieving people became believers. Think about that. Think about the secession of faith. You and I are here right now because of what Jesus did. That physical act 2,000 years ago left heaven to, to spread his peace. We're here because of that. We are part of that lineage. Jesus spends a great deal of time with those who are far from God. And if you're going to be sent like Jesus, then you have to do the same. You have to at least try to do the same. Pray for the burden to do the same. Look for the opportunities. You have to invite people into your lives. 
You have to watch how they invite you into theirs. You have to invite them over for supper. You have to invite them to your church. Invite them to your community group. Invite them to do something. Invite them to engage you and see Jesus. And watch how God works. It isn't rocket science, but it does require a little bit of courage sometimes. And that courage is going to be signified in this last step. We pray, we bless, we make it a priority to be in the spaces where people who do not know the Lord are. And the last step is a very simple but important one. You have to do it. You just have to do it. Uh, you ever seen a kid uh, stand on the side of a pool or maybe like a, a six or an eight foot diving board and they're just looking at the pool. They can't make the jump. They know how to jump in the pool. They know how the water will feel. They've seen a hundred people do it. They are there and they are literally one decision away from doing something pretty great. But they are paralyzed. Maybe you think like that was me yesterday at my friend's house. I can't jump off of a diving board. The fear of this can be paralytic. But what I'm telling you, and I know this sounds abrasive, I don't mean it to be, I want it to be more true than abrasive, is that you cannot let what we have talked about, you cannot stand on the edge of the pool and not jump in. Don't let what we talked about today be another set of sermon notes and a margin in your Bible. Don't let them be uh, another set of notes in your iPhone. Don't let it be another teaching about the mission of God, about peace. Let Jesus' words about mission be a heart-deep teaching that shapes your life in God. You have to, at some point, be obedient. And you have to watch God work. You have to jump. And so in summary, pray, bless, spend time around the people of God that are far from God, and then act. When God opens the door, act. Just like the disciples here at times, because of our fear, we will talk about fear in a few weeks, but because of our fear, we just assume people will say no if we, if we invite them into our homes, our lives, or our church. If we invite them into anything, they're just going to say no. We read all the facts and the stats. Sometimes they're accurate. A great many times they're not about how the world will respond to Jesus. I would just like to encourage you beyond assumption this morning and to actually get to the point where you just find out. Don't assume what somebody will do. Maybe just ask and find out. You might be surprised at what God is already doing in the hearts of those people. And remember, you're following what we talked about last week. You're following the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus didn't say, get on my mission see you in heaven. He said, my peace I give you, my spirit I give you, go get on my mission. We are following the presence of the Holy Spirit. God is already working ahead of you. So give him a chance to show you who those people are and labor well when he does. As we end our response time, I certainly want, to give us, I want us to give thanks for the grace we've received. I don't want to undermine, and we spent time last week doing this, so I'll just give it as a courtesy. I don't want to undermine what it means for Jesus to give us his personal peace. That's important, foundational, critical. We have received God's redemptive peace, but we don't want to stop there. We want to ask God to compel our hearts to love those whom he has put in our lives in the very same way. So as we close, ask yourself, what is Jesus saying to you about his grace, his goodness, his causes, and his mission? And what is it will you, you will do when you leave this place? Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for this morning. Thank you for uh, an opportunity to, to reflect on your cross, to think about your son, to think about who he is, to think about his, his words. And his words, if we really believe that the Bible is the Bible, then what that means is your words are all truth. They are all power. They are right in every way. And so I pray, Lord, that as we move into a, a time of reflection now, quiet contemplation, we would just really think through, pray, and process what these words mean. And I pray, Lord, that we would let these words that your Son gives us on the heels of living them out, on the heels of showing your peace to the world through the act of the cross, 
I pray, Lord, that we would just recognize you have gone before us, you have labored and do labor in this way on our behalf and in the world. And all you ask us to do, God, is not to carry the burden of that, but to, to serve under, uh, under your power and your authority and in your presence. God, it is our prayer this morning that we would never forget you are working ahead of us. And all you are asking us to do is to see where you are working, to join in and to labor in the ways to, to serve when you give us opportunities, God, to bless in the name of your son, Jesus. And it is in his name that we pray this now. Amen. We only have a few minutes to get the left.